We are varying slightly this morning from our series in Romans, having come to the end of chapter 1. So we take this week's break. We are going to resume Romans next week, chapter 2. But for this morning, I direct your attention to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And we're basically finishing old business from the book of Hebrews, as I mentioned some time ago. From time to time, we'll come back and complete sections that we did not uh, do. So Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 32 to 34. The writer had been enumerating the various heroes of the faith, and he continues to do that in verses 32 to 34. And in verse 32, he picks up, he says there, and what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Samson was the last of 12 persons, each of whom was raised up by God at different times to deliver Israel from foreign powers and to direct the nation back to God. These people were known as judges, and the record of their lives and exploits is found, of course, in the book of Judges. Now, of note is that no other judge is given as much attention in Scripture as is Samson. And more than that, his life and his service for the Lord, are narrated in the most dramatic, action-packed fashion. For readers of the Bible, Samson is perhaps most popularly known for his incredible, phenomenal physical strength. For others, he is readily remembered as a philanderer, as somewhat of a playboy. His life was a strange mix of being mightily used of God on the one hand and being drawn to moral laxity on the other hand. As one writer describes his contradictory life, quote, Samson's struggle was at the same time against the Philistines and his own weaknesses, and both proved too persistent in the end. In today's terminology, we might call Samson conflicted, one part mightily moved by the Spirit of God, one part stumbling of a giant of a man who lived hard and died hard. He was a product of the conflicted times of the judges and perhaps best represents the frustrated hopes in the days when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right 
in his own eyes, end quote. And in studying the life and career of this man, this judge, Samson, we consider first of all his birth and his early years. His birth and early years. To begin with, he was blessed with godly parents. He was born into a family which was one of the few that remained faithful to the Lord during days of spiritual darkness. In fact, Judges chapter 13, verses 3 to 23, portray his parents as a couple that was keenly sensitive and submissive to the Lord's presence and directive. Being barren, his mother was visited by an angel of the Lord who told her that she would have a son. And the angel of the Lord instructed her how to raise that son. He was to be a Nazarite from the womb. That is to say, he was to be totally separated to the Lord. He was not to drink wine and no razor was to come upon his head. Genesis chapter, sorry, Judges chapter 13 and verse 8 presents his father, Manoah, as a praying man. Not being present at the time the angel of the Lord appeared to his wife, he prayed to the Lord. And he requested that the Lord would again send the angel of the Lord so that the angel of the Lord might show them how they should raise this child. Missing the angel of the Lord a second time. Manoah hastened after the angel of the Lord, and having seen him, he inquired of him in verse 12 of chapter 13, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And then later we see in verses 19 and 20 of that very same chapter, Manoah worshiping the Lord with his wife. And such was the deep piety, such was the devotion of this couple, this godly couple, particularly against the backdrop of spiritual darkness, the spiritual declension of that era. It was an era in which twice, according to the book of Judges, it was said in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Samson, we could say then, was blessed with godly parents who instructed him in the ways of the Lord. Now, Judges 13 and verse 24 states that the woman bore a son, and she called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And as evidence of the Lord's blessing upon his life, verse 25 of Judges chapter 13 tells us the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manahendan between Zorah and Eshtel. Mahanet Dan, which literally means camp of Dan, along with Zorah and Eshtal, was on a rocky hill that overlooked the Sorek Valley, which of course was at that time under Philistine occupation. And knowing that that region was all part of the land that God had given his people Israel, that it was now under enemy control. 
Samson, it appears, was profoundly moved by the Spirit of God to do something about it. The Bible tells us how that the Spirit of the Lord stirred him right in the camp in that place, Mahanen Dan. And this sort of reminds us, of course, of the Apostle Paul, who you recall when he was in Athens. Acts chapter 17, verses 16, 17 tells us that when he saw the idolatry there in Athens, his spirit was provoked in him. We get an idea here that that was something similar that Samson experienced as he looked down in the Soric Valley where the Philistines were. His heart was moved, the Spirit of God took hold of him, and he was led, as it were, to do something about it. Indeed, one of the ways the Lord often calls and moves his people to service is to open their eyes to see some situation that needs to be addressed. Now, the first recorded activity of Samson, we find in chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, concerned his going down to Timna. And seeing a Philistine, he desired to marry. Against the protest of his father and his mother, because this woman was a Philistine woman, Samson insisted, arguing that she is right in his eyes. He says, he demanded, get her for me, for she pleases me well. She is right in my Eyes. I've got the right one, was what he was saying. So when he and his parents went to Timna to arrange the marriage, what do you know? Out came a lion from the vineyards, roaring at Samson. I believe that what we had there, in fact, the, the Bible tells us that it was the Lord really using that occasion to get at the Philistines. But you'll notice what happened. God, we're going to see, is going to overrule, and Samson is not going to marry this woman. But perhaps this was another sign of his being outside the will of God, pursuing a foreign woman, wanting to marry this foreign woman. Out came a lion from the vineyards, roaring at him. And we are told in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 14 how that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, so that with his bare hands, he tore, he ripped the lion in pieces. This is the second reference in the book of Judges, where we find the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Samson mightily. The Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him mightily. The others, of course, being chapter 14, verse 19, having to do with his striking down, 30 of the Philistines, chapter 15, verse 14, which relates how he was able to burst the ropes with which he had been bound. And let me say here, we see clearly what was the secret of Samson's strength. The secret of Samson's strength was not that he visited the gym and worked out. It was not that he spent time at the gym Ripping muscles, building muscles. In fact, let me suggest to you that we must not, contrary to popular depictions of Samson, necessarily think of him 
in terms of Atlas or Hercules or the Incredible Hulk, Samson, for all we may know, may well have looked like me. I believe that he perhaps looked like me. (laughs) You see, why do I say that? Because there was something phenomenal about his strength, supernatural about his strength. And here's the point. Samson's strength, let me also say, was not in his hair. Yes, we know when he cut his hair, he became weak. But the hair was a symbol of his devotion to God. And to the extent that Samson was devoted to the Lord, was fulfilling his Nazarite role, his call to live a separated life, a life of holy service to the Lord, Samson was strong. Let me suggest to you that fundamental source of Samson's strength was the Spirit of the Lord who came upon him. It was the Spirit of the Lord who came upon him, and that holds true for you and me today, beloved. The fact is, we too need the empowering of God's Spirit. We too need the power of the Holy Spirit, if at all we are to serve God in any worthwhile manner. For it is not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord, Zechariah 4 and verse 6. Back to the account of Samson, days after he killed the lion. The Bible tells us in chapter 14 and verse 9 that he found a swarm of bees that had made honey in the carcass of the lion. He gave some of the honey to his parents, the Bible tells us, but did not tell them where he obtained it, just as he had not told them about the lion that he had killed. If you ask the question, why did he keep it from his parents? Why didn't he tell them about the honey that he had eaten? Why didn't he tell them the source from which it came? Why didn't he tell them about the lion he killed? Because you see, Samson well knew that he was beginning to compromise his Nazarite vow. Because among other things, a Nazarite was not to go near a dead body. A Nazarite was not to eat honey. He was not to eat honey. He was not to drink wine. And so Samson was compromising his faith here is called to be a Nazareth and hence he kept it from mom and dad. So on three counts so far, on three counts, we find Samson is, is following his own impulse. First, in wanting to marry this heathen girl. Secondly, in going near the body, the dead, the, the carcass of a lion. And then thirdly, eating honey from the carcass of a lion. Now we're told that Samson put on a feast at Timnah. This was in anticipation, of course, of his wedding. We could call it a stag party, as they call it today. And he posed a riddle. He posed a riddle and a wager related to the lion and the honey. His wife knew the answer to the riddle and was pressured by her people, the Philistines, to tell them the answer. And of course, when she told them, They in turn told Samson the answer, and Samson was angry. He said, if you you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have known, you would not have expounded my riddle. 
And out of revenge, what did he do? He went, and in more so in order to pay them the bet that he had wagered, he took 300 foxes, the Bible tells us, and tied them tail to tail, affixing to each a pair of torch. And he released them into the grain fields of the Philistines. In retaliation, the Philistines burnt his wife, or the woman he would marry, and her father. Again in revenge, Samson went and slaughtered vast numbers of them. Chapter 15 and verse 1. You know something else that God did to show, and of course I believe to teach this lesson concerning circumventing his will? What do you know? That woman that he wanted to marry, outside of God's clear will, outside of God's clear purpose, by the time it came around for him to marry this woman, what happened? His father took her and gave her in marriage to his, that is Samson's, best man. Listen, you can't fight against God and win. Let me say this morning, there, there are perhaps, and in fact, I know from time to time as a pastor, I've seen this time and again, people try, particularly in their marriage. Sometimes they know they're not supposed to marry a certain individual. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You show them all the verses, you show them all the reasons in scripture why they should not, but here's the point. They find some justification. They go right ahead, and guess what? yes. They make big blunders. They suffer for it. We never fight against the word and will of God and win. Well, the Philistines, having now turned against the people of Judah, because right now, where were they before? In the region of Dan, where Samson was. And out of revenge for um, wanting, they wanted to get back at Samson. So what they did, they, they went to another territory now. They left the territory of Dan and they went to the territory of Judah and they began to harass the people of Judah. The men of Judah were forced to hunt down Samson, bind him with new ropes. And what they did, they handed him over to the Philistines. But once again, the Bible tells us the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that he snapped the ropes, took the jawbone of a donkey, and killed as many as 1,000 Philistines. We see this in chapter 15, verses 9 through 20. How is Samson doing so far? Yes? He's killing Philistines, isn't he? Yes, he's doing that. He's fulfilling God's purpose in that regard. But then what of his personal life? He's a disaster. He's a disaster. Chapter 16 and verse 1 finds Samson at this time going down to Gaza where he becomes involved with a prostitute. Discovering that he was there, the men of the city plotted to kill him at dawn. But what did Samson do? At midnight, he pulled up 
<laughs> he took up the bars, the, 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 the gates of the city. He puts them on his shoulder. He climbs to the top of Hebron and he leaves them on the top of Hebron. He then goes to the valley of Sorek. And what do you know? He falls in love with yet another Philistine woman. You know the story. She pressures him into telling her the secret of his strength after playing around, misleading her, misguiding her. He finally gives in to her, tells her the secret of his strength that if, if his hair were to be cut, he would then be as weak as other men. This woman, of course, you know as Delilah. And this led to Samson's undoing because it then gave an opportunity to the Philistines. The Philistines, by this time, having this information, they came, they seized him, and put him in prison. There in prison at Gaza, Samson was thoroughly, disgracefully humiliated. He underwent severe humiliation by the Philistines, having gouged out his eyes. Chapter 16, verse 21. They placed him under hard labor in prison. They put him to grind at the mill in prison. And even as they put him to grind in the prison at the mill, they were making sport of him. They were having a wonderful time. They were entertaining themselves as they watched Samson functioning for them as a clown. In addition, they praised Dagon, their God, for delivering him into their hand, chapter 16, 23 to 25. But even as the Philistines were having a great time, you know the story. What did Samson do? He asked the young man who was leading him, because remember by now, he had lost his sight, they had gouged out his eyes. He asked them to lead him to the place between the two pillars supporting the temple. Then crying out to the Lord for strength, he begged the Lord, he begged the Lord that one more time God would strengthen him. He begged God, he says, let me die with the Philistines. And we are told how that with all his mighty, he brought the pillars together. And of course, what happened? The, buildings, the building came crashing down, killing, the Bible tells us, he killed more Philistines on this occasion than in his entire Lifetime. Chapter 16, 18, 28 through 30. What must we make of Samson? Let's talk a little about his character. Samson's character. An assessment of his character. What were his good points? His positive points. Let me say here, though it's not clear that he was a man of prayer. Yet we can at least give him this much. He certainly knew the importance of prayer. We don't see him in the narratives. We don't hear of him praying to the Lord as Samson prayed to the Lord constantly. Samuel, of course, rather Samuel was a man of prayer. We, don't, we didn't hear that of Samson. There are two occasions on which he resorted to prayer when he cried out to the Lord. Chapter 15, verse 18, when he was thirsty, he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? 
And of course, the second time we hear Samson in prayer was this last occasion when he brought down the house, so to speak, killing so many people. Chapter 16, verse 28, he prayed nearing his death, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. That's what I found in terms of his strength. He knew the importance of prayer. It doesn't seem as though he was really a man of prayer. In fact, truth is it doesn't appear he was a man of piety. He certainly was a man who was mightily used of God. But what were his negative traits? His negative traits. First of all, Samson was erratic and impulsive. And this was evidenced by his proclivity to self-will. The first instance we see of his being erratic, the first instance we see him as a man of self-will was when, against the better advice of his parents, he insisted on wanting to marry this, this Philistine, this heathen woman. Talk about self-will. Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Of course, as it turned out, as we saw earlier, the marriage did not materialize. We never fight against God and his word and win. As we mentioned earlier, this girl's father gave her in marriage to his, that is Samson's best man. Samson's erratic behavior could be seen, secondly, in his tendency to be always hot-headed. He was clearly a man of hot-headed anger and, on top of that, revenge. We see that in chapter 4, verse 19, when he had to dole out money, he had to pay out money for the bet he had wagered, he was angry. In fact, in all his battles against the Philistines, he was motivated more by personal revenge, by personal retaliation, than he was motivated by, um, to, to fight the Lord's battles, defeating the enemies of God in the service of the Lord. Chapter 15, verse 7, verse 11, chapter 16, verse 28, in each of those instances, Solomon is bent on revenge and retaliation to give vent to his own personal feelings. He was a man who was erratic. He was a man who was impulsive. But secondly, he was a man who was given to uncontrolled lust. Uncontrolled lust. Samson lacks self-control. He lacks self-control, which of course is a crucial trait, a crucial element for those who are in positions of spiritual leadership, particularly in the area of spiritual leadership. He lacked self-control. He was given to lust. Running from one woman to another, he was a slave to sensual promiscuity. He was thoughtless. He was reckless in his pursuit of women. 
And this was his nemesis. This was Samson's fatal flaw because lacking control of his life, he paid dearly for such carelessness in both life and death. In the end, as we saw in chapter 16, he met with personal disaster because unlike the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27, he failed to discipline his body and to subjugate it. Recall Paul's resolve in 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27. Paul writes there, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable sort. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I, hear what Paul says, but I discipline my body. And keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be what? Disqualified. Samson, in the end, suffered personal defeat. Why? Because he was a man of uncontrolled lust. Let me say here, because sometimes, you know, over the years, I hear believers, professing believers say, you know, I just can't help it particularly the area of sexual sins, they say, I just can't help it. And I have to do it. And let me say this. Let me just say this. Yes, sexual temptations are very serious. They can be hard to control. But here's the point. Control it we must by the grace of God. Because if it's not controlled... It will destroy you. It will destroy you. And the word of God teaches that a believer who professes faith in Christ, one who is professing faith in Christ and is living in sexual sins, in sexual immorality, in the name of just can't help it, the Bible tells us, the Bible warns that such persons will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the Bible says, be not deceived. Yes, it, it, it is something that is very difficult, it can be very challenging, but it must, by the grace of God, be controlled. And the Holy Spirit of God can help in that area. The Holy Spirit of God can give the power, can give the grace. Thirdly, Samson failed to take seriously the call of God to lead a separated life. Rather than seeking a wife from among the people of God, his fellow Israelites, he forged unholy relationships with one Philistine woman after another. He violated his Nazarite vow by going near to the carcass of the lion and by eating honey he found in it. He did so blatantly. He did so without regard to God's call on his life to be separated to lead the life of a Nazarite. He did so by putting on a drinking party involving the use of wine, chapter 14, verse 10. In fact, how do we know that? Because the Hebrew word that's used there for feast that he puts on, the Hebrew word is a word that's often used with regard to festive drinking. The Bible is not against alcohol per se, but here's the point. Specifically for Samson, he was not to touch the stuff. He was not to touch the stuff. Fourthly, Samson's life 
And then before we get to that, here's how he failed to take seriously the call to lead a separated life. In the interest of sporting and playing around, what did he do? He toyed with and gambled away the secret and strength, secret and source of his strength. He told Delilah, listen, if they cut my hair, then I'll be as weak as other men. It sort of reminds us of Esau. In the moment, under the pressure of the moment, knowing what was wrong, walked right into it and committed presumptuous sin. That was Samson. And then fourthly, Samson's life was marked by glaring inconsistencies. One contributor to the Ungas Bible Dictionary says this, quote, In Samson the Nazarite, we see a man towering in supernatural strength through his firm faith in and confident reliance upon the gift of God committed to him. On the other hand, we see in Samson an adventurous, foolhardy, passionate, and willful man dishonoring and fritting away his God-given power by making it subservient to his own lust, end quote. Samson was not living up to his call. He led a double life. He led a, a contradictory life. He led a con conflicted life. Elsewhere, another commentator says of Samson this, quote, he spent time with pagan prostitutes, and though he could beat a thousand men, he was beaten by a woman. When he pushed aside the pillars of the temple, he killed thousands, but he also killed himself. This is a tragic waste of Samson, the champion who became a clown, end quote. Beloved, let me say this. Phys physically, Samson may have been the strongest man in his day and perhaps even the strongest man in the world. At least in, at that time, yet in, in, in terms of spiritual inward character, he was, we could say, one of the weakest men. We see that in Samson, a man who started off brilliantly, a man who was under the anointing of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God would move him. The Spirit of God would rush upon him. He would do exploits for God. A man of untold possibilities ahead of him. And yet, sadly, what with all the victories he won for Israel, even up to the point of his death, he himself incurred massive personal defeat. Samson serves as a solemn warning. He serves as a solemn warning as to the pitfalls into which any of us, but for the grace of God, may fall. How many there are who at one time were zealously, fervently serving the Lord, yet toward the end of their lives came to utter spiritual disaster. We see that from time to time. We see giants in the faith. We see stalwarts for God, men with large works, impressive works of the Lord, large churches, and we see how they come crashing down. Why? Oftentimes you trace their lives and you see exactly those traits that were in the life of Samson. Uncontrolled lust, uncontrolled anger, self-will, and so on and so forth. That is why, here's the truth. The truth is, we never get away with sin 
and be victorious. Watch out for little compromises in your life. I speak to myself. Watch out for little compromises that we make because here's the point. Incrementally, what those are doing in our lives, those little sins, those little compromises, what they are doing, they are weakening the fabric of our character and sooner or later will come crashing, tumbling down to utter disaster. That is why the word of God says, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. This was precisely the concern of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.27 where he says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Now the thing to note is that Samson's failure, and I think I just hinted at that, Samson's failure did not occur suddenly. His failure did not occur suddenly. His failure occurred by degrees, by increments. Over time, Samson started on a path downward the very day he went down to Timnath to seek out that Philistine woman wanting to marry her. And from this sin came one sin after another, one compromise after another, until you get to chapter 16 and he's in a total mess. So with the continual breaking of his Nazarite vow, Samson came to eventual catastrophic humiliation. Now perhaps the greatest marvel of Samson's life, and you know, if you say, can you understand it? I tell you, it's hard to wrap our heads around it, isn't it? Listen, perhaps the greatest thing about Samson's life, the most marvelous thing about Samson's life, is Scripture's evaluation of him. Scripture's evaluation of him. Because notwithstanding the glaring faults, the glaring failures of Samson's life, the strikingly amazing thing is that Samson, we find here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 to 34, is listed among such spiritual luminaries as David, Samuel, and the prophets of whom it is said in Hebrews chapter 11, 32 to 34, that through faith they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lands, quenched the power of fire, escaped the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And three of these feats were true of Samson. What were they? Well, he stopped the mouth of a lion. Samson was made strong out of weakness. Samson, for sure, became mighty in war. And how was he able to do these three feats? The word of God says he was able to do it by faith. Can we put here another of his strong points? Because the writer of Hebrews tells us that he knew the value of prayer. And secondly, he was a man of faith. My friends, such is the power of the grace of God. Do you see here the grace of God? Such is the power of the grace of God that Scripture's final evaluation of Samson is not in terms of his many failures, is not in terms of his many sins, his many blunders. Scripture's final evaluation of Samson concerns the matter of his faith in God and what he was able to accomplish for God through faith. That's grace. That's grace. Well, what are the lessons we can take away from this man, Samson, this morning? 
Let me give you a few. Number one, the lesson of Samson for us. And this is very important, very, very important. The lesson of Samson for us, first of all, is that we cannot, we cannot equate outward impressiveness with inward character. A lot of people make that mistake. We must never equate outward impressiveness with inward character. From his life, we learn that it's one thing to be gifted, but it's quite another thing to be godly. There are many people who are gifted, but they're not godly. They are talented, but they have nothing of commitment or love for God. Indeed, one may have charisma and yet be lacking in character. And that's why we find today many so-called megachurch pastors who function as superstars. They come crashing down. Why? Because somehow they have been duped into thinking that just because they have massively eloquence, they, they, ma massive eloquence, they are able to build large churches, therefore something must be right with them spiritually. But here's the point. God is sovereign and God can even use a drunkard. God can use a wicked man to do great things. We must never equate success with spirituality. And that is what we learn from Samson. As the Apostle Paul suggests in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, once again, we may well preach to others and yet in the end be a castaway. Worse yet, according to our Lord Jesus, one may have done many wonderful works and in his name even cast out demons and yet have him say on that final day, Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Just because a person has charisma does not necessarily mean he's of God. If he does not have character, he's not of God. We cannot look at outward success and equate that with spirituality. We cannot look at eloquence, an eloquent preacher, a knowledgeable preacher of the word of God, and conclude that that man is necessarily godly and spiritual. There are preachers who are powerful. There are preachers who can be very eloquent. They know the scriptures, and yet they are ungodly. And yet in the end, they're going to be castaways. That's what Samson's life teaches, teaches us. Of course, in the grace of God, from all indications, Samson will not be a castaway because, as we're going to see, secondly, well, not yet, but let me give a second lesson. Spiritual defeat and disaster, secondly, is the inevitable result of a life that sows to the world and the flesh. Spiritual defeat and disaster, we learn from Samson, is the inevitable result of a life that sows to the world and the flesh. We never once again circumvent or compromise the will and word of God and win. We never. The word of God warns in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap life everlasting. If we sow to the wind, guess what? We're going to reap the whirlwind. But I like this fourth lesson from Samson. I like this fourth lesson we learn from Samson, and it is this. The amazing, victorious providence of God. 
The amazing victorious providence of God. What is the providence of God? The providence of God centers on the fact that God is in control of all people, all circumstances, all events, and he orchestrates all of these entities to bring about his wise, good, loving purposes. In the case of Samson, we notice that though contrary to his devotion to God, watch this, though contrary to his devotion to God, His intimate dealings with three women were nevertheless used by God to precipitate a conflict between him and the Philistines. And out of these conflicts, what happened? Samson vanquished, he defeated, he killed thousands of these Philistines. But yet, here's the point, that does not absolve Samson. You see, God is sovereign. God can use the wrath of man to praise him. The point is that man's sins do not frustrate the purposes of God. In the end, God God uses even our sins and failures to accomplish his will, his sovereign purpose. And then we see, where are we? Number five, we we find fifthly, the wonderful restoring grace of God. That's another lesson we learn from Samson, the wonderful Restoring grace of God. And the lesson is this, that though faith may fail and falter, though faith may fail and falter, yet by God's grace, faith can be restored. Faith can be restored. We thank God for that. Though Samson's life ended in tragedy, though Samson's life ended in disaster because of the poor decisions he made, yet in the end, as scripture indicates, he called upon God. God heard his prayer. And no doubt restored him before his death. For the failing believer today, you might be failing, you might be floundering, you might be struggling with some sin. Here's the good news. How assuring the truth that God stands ready to forgive. God stands ready to forgive. Someone has well said that the real tragedy, listen, the real tragedy of Samson's life is that deep down he knew he had been running from God. The greatest victory in Samson's life was that in his brokenness, he finally turned back to God. And that's the key, you see. The true believer will not remain in sin in the providence of God. That believer is going to be restored by the grace of God. The true believer, beloved, cannot continue in sin. God loves that person too much to allow him or her to continue in sin. You know what the word of God suggests? If as a professing believer you are living in sin, what the word of God suggests? If you are a true, true believer, God will take you home. That's sad, but it's, a, it's an attestation to his, his grace. And we don't want to go to heaven that way. We don't want to go to heaven that way. Finally, in Samson's failure, you and I should not see an excuse or justification for our sins. Somebody's going to say, well, look at Samson. He ran around with women. He slept with women, and yet he was powerfully used of God, but he paid for it. He paid for it. We should see in Samson rather a sobering reminder of what we could become if not for the grace of God. In Samson's victories, you and I I should see the tremendous possibilities that can be ours if we are yielded to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Beyond Samson, you and I should see 
none other than the Lord Jesus, the one who is mighty to save, the one who is strong, our Redeemer is strong. We should see in him the one who has all the fullness of the Spirit of God, the one who is our Redeemer, the one who is our Savior, the one who is mighty to save. That's how we ought to see and read the account of Samson's life. It's not about Samson in the end. It's about our faithful Redeemer, who, unlike Samson, is strong, in fact, stronger than Samson, yet faithful and true to God. Our Redeemer, our Savior, the one who died, and having died, rose again, so that we might be saved.